It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Back to the livest hour in Charleston. I've so dubbed it. This is Miked Up on Ohm. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. It's Friday the 13th. I believe there's like a full moon tonight. All types of stuff is going down. You're listening to Miked Up on Ohm on uh, 96.3 FM on radio. This is your non-profit, non-commercial radio station, and we're broadcasting live as we do every every day, all day, from Workshop. Workshop is located at 1503 King Street inside, and of course we're here in our cube here, and that's the own radio studio. Um, again, for those who don't know, this is mic'd up. It's one hour of activist radio um, talk. Uh, sometimes I've had, I have guests, sometimes I've had music musicians, in rap stars you name it all types of uh, really interesting folk to come in and talk about uh things that are either pressing and, and current here in charleston um how they impact black lives specifically black and gullah lives uh and, or or any of the marginalized communities here so we we've talked about everything like environmental justice we've talked about um you know, fair and equitable uh, access to opportunities for uh, black musicians. We've talked about this uh, disparity of treatment within certain institutions, the nonprofit industrial complex, so on and so forth. But there's one topic that I've been beating the drum on consistently just in my personal life um, as I navigate just life. Um, for those who don't know, I'm, I'm 38 years old. Uh, so Mika has lived, as I like to tell you, tell my 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 play cousins and 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 uh you know my play sisters and brothers um, Mika has lived what does that mean that means that you know I, I went to undergrad in, in Jersey City New Jersey um around the time of 9-11 um I was born and raised in New Jersey but my father is a is a native of this area he's a native of Wadmalaw Island and in fact he retired early um he retired while I was still in high school tragically so uh so back in, I had to, back in the day I had to finish my last three years of high school here in Charleston uh county and, and and immediately upon graduating high school, I zipped right back up. And like I said, I went to undergrad in Jersey City. Um, but I returned to the low country about uh, five years ago. So we fast forward a, a lot of years, y'all. You're doing the math. I'm 38, da-da-da-da-da. And so I found myself coming back because, A, um, like so many other African-Americans, reverse migration is a real thing. Um, our, our, our value systems change as we grow up. It's all of us grow up, regardless of, of race and ethnicity. And, you know, I really wanted to be closer to my folks who are aging and I wanted a different lifestyle and, and Charleston is just a beautiful place and I'm glad I'm here but one thing that has really just um, confounded me and has stunted me and has uh, stymied me and almost at almost every turn has been um, the lack of employment viable employment opportunities for myself now to be quite honest with you there's no bastion there's no haven for black women in the workplace no matter where we go um, that's just the honesty I I think a lot of women can relate to that as well. But specifically for black women, our, our walk in this country is unique. Our, the, the roles we've been either forced to, to assume or those that we've kind of been pushed into 
you know, that all informs how we're perceived at work and the type of work we yield. So so today's show is going to be about black women's labor, not just their physical labor, but their intellectual capacity, um, but their, their innovation, their spirit to just create roles outside of those that have been given and assigned to us by institutions and, and thing and, and things that are informed by systemic oppression. I really, this is, this is really important to me. And I wanted to talk about this uh, on a previous show. We know we had the, uh, the hurricane evacuation. I evacuated up into uh, the Asheville mountains. Um, it's my first trip to Asheville. It is as dope as everyone says. It's beautiful. I was out there with the black bears, y'all. I was in the cabin no Wi-Fi. <laughs> and um, I really had a chance to, to think about it because we came off the heels of Labor Day. And what I do um, on social media on the at the Charleston Activist Network, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter accounts, I like to leverage the archives. Right. I like to, to leverage our historical archives and mine for uh, hidden truths or hidden hidden um, figures. And I like to just um, bring them to the forefront and showcase what black lives look like, what feel, fully realized, fully formed black lives look like, um, you know, in, in times where we were, we know we're always a race. We don't see these black figures. We don't see these inventors and these innovators. We don't see enough of them. Um, all too often we've been a race. Like no one probably knows that there are black Rosie the Riveters or, or people don't understand that black women led the charge to um, advocate for better working conditions and wages at the cigar factory. A lot of those truths are something that we have to learn a little later in life, unfortunately. And so I'd like to showcase those stories. And like I said, before the hurricane, um, before Hurricane Dory, uh, threatened this area we came off of, of of labor day and i was finding and mining this content this will be probably my my fourth year and uh, fourth consecutive year of finding this content so i've pretty i've grown pretty good at finding these little hidden gems of charleston that tell a story about black people in work um and also some of the work i've done with my friends and other and other causes i found these great stories of, of what our, our lives look like now all of the stories aren't great in terms of how we were treated but it's great for me to 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 uh, discover uh, my own history and, and know what my folk look like and know what, what, what Charleston looked like, the full com- complexity of Charleston, what that looked like in the, you know, maybe um, not just starting with slavery, but prior to slavery. Um, some of us were freed. Uh, what did that look like? What did Denmark Vesey look like when he purchased his freedom, um, you know, after winning a lottery? What what did our lives look like and during re- Reconstruction? What did it, you know, so I, I like to look at those stories as well, not just us and, um, as the enslaved. And so um, I'm, I'm finding this content, and again, it coincides with what I feel so deeply, which is I'm really struggling, y'all. I, I want to come on this mic and be as candid as possible. I'm really struggling, and I've never struggled this hard before in my life. I feel like I'm the um, I'm at a place where I've amassed an, an enough skills and enough um, experience, and I've invested, and I have my degree, and and I've gone back to school and received certain certifications, and yet opportunities seem to continuously slip through my fingers. And instead of lamenting and, and, and um, you know, maybe feeling a little um, too much self-pity, I, I started to listen closely. And I listened to my mother tell me another story, a story that I, I, I know to be fact because we lived it. You know, we didn't just move down here. Me and my, my twin brother, we didn't just move down here. And my dad, no, my mother moved down here as well. My mother worked as, um, all my life, I grew up my mom being in nursing. 
Um, I always saw her don her scrubs and her white nurse's shoes with the little blue heart on the heel. Her, I think they were called nursemaids or something. Um, I always remember that because she would have to wake me up really, really early in the morning to do my hair. And then like um, she would tie a scarf around it and put me back to sleep because she had to wake me up at, at hours that weren't conventional, right? Because nursing hours are really, really long shifts at, at, at awkward times, awkward for kids. And so I remember her getting up every morning and putting on her scrubs and going to the hospital where we lived in Monmouth County called Riverview Hospital. And my mom would go, and, and, and sometimes we would go with her. Not often, because it's a hospital. It's not a place for kids. But, you know, on t- at times when, like, there were fireworks or something, because Riverview was, in fact, on the river. And so the top of the hospital was a great place to watch fireworks. So, you know, for company parties and whatnot, we'd accompany my mother to her, to her job at the hospital. When my mother wasn't working at the hospital, she, also, she, she ran her own informal um, private duty nursing agency. The agency really consisted of a, a, a number of surrogate and real aunts that I had in that area. And so she would get the, she'd get the most qualified and, and, and most ambitious aunts that, uh, aunties that, that I knew and she would just strategically place them in, in homes in, in wealthy white neighborhoods in Rumpson and Atlantic, Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey, all throughout these beautiful coast, coastal areas of New Jersey, the shore. Um, not that Jersey shore, but the real Jersey shore. Um, she would place my aunties in all these areas and, and they would take care of, of, of bedridden um, wealthy folk who, um, you know, just didn't want to go to a home and, you know, didn't want to be displaced or anything like that. They had enough means and income to to uh, purchase, you know, or to enlist the services of a around the clock nurse, a nurse that would work around the clock. And my mom worked like that for years, so much so there were so many families that took us in as like surrogate uh, of um, family members like we were like nephews and whatnot and, and and some really really amazing people in fact one of my math tutors tutors was an, an executive for AT&T and he would go on these international trips and bring me back all these like this jewelry and, and currency from other countries especially from the uh, continent of Africa I remember these stories so vividly because I remember my mom working and thriving my brother and I wanted for nothing when the Jordans came out he got them when the Game Boy came out, we got them. We got the Nintendo. We got everything. We never wanted for anything. And my dad had a great job, too. My dad worked, um, you know, uh, as, as a, a union laborer for major grocery stores like their, their um, fulfillment center, like their, their warehouse. So he had a great job as well. We had a great home in, in Tinton Falls, New Jersey. Uh, our block consisted of, of, of uh, maybe I would say about 90% black families who all own, own homes. So I was exposed to a lot of upwardly mobile middle class black folk growing up in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s. And it wasn't until we made the transition to Charleston to this area that we really, really faced some interesting times. You know, I, again, I tell you, I remember so vividly my mom getting up every morning to go to either the hospital or to work in the homes of, of, of these families who needed uh, care around the clock. She was always treated with dignity, even though there were trying times and, and, and not all customers, not all clients were, were angels. But my mother was able to earn a competitive wage. She had the credentials. She kept her she kept her credentials current by working at the hospital. She invested in her education. She told me how hard it was for her to even be accepted in, in a nursing school. She initially wanted to be a registered nurse, but had to settle for CNA. 
for a certified nurse's aide. But it still was a, it was still uh, it was still a great way for her to earn for her family, and that's why she and in fact that's why she had to do the private duty work because she couldn't break down certain barriers to get into nursing. They just wouldn't let her in the program, no matter how hard she studied, no matter how hard she tried. When we moved down to Charleston, she tried to find another hospital that would be a lot like Riverview. She went to Roper. She went to MUSC. She went to all the notable suspects. And she was given uh, suggestions to apply to be a, uh, a janitor. And while there is no shame, no shame in, in earning, uh, uh, earning a living wage in this country, my mother was never a janitor. My mother never cleaned toilets unless, you know, she had to do it for her private duty cases here and there, provide some, some mild uh, housekeeping. But my mom didn't go to school for that. She didn't work over 20 years in healthcare to be someone's maid. But after door number one slammed and door number three slammed and door number four slammed, and she finally found her way into one nursing home, and um, she was accused of doing something that she did not do. One thing about my mother, not just because she's my mom, she's a woman of integrity. And she never stole anything a day in her life. She never fell asleep on the job. She seldom comes to work late. If she does, it's because a car has broken down. She never calls out. My mother is dependable, and that's, that's a fact. But she found herself being written up at this nursing home. She found herself being disciplined here and right and left for little infractions that she didn't commit. And then one day she said, you know what? I've had enough. And my mom had to retire early. And we had to figure out the rest on our own. The doors kept shutting for her. And I, and I remember looking back. This happened all like in the early 2000s and, I, and, and a little bit before that. And I look back and I'm like, wow, how did we go from, you know, my mom earning a really great wage and, and us really never wanting for anything and multiple cars in the, in the yard and a beautifully well-appointed lawn. How do we go to that to, you know, trying to, quote unquote, figure it out? Then I would listen as, I, again, this is me moving back here five years ago or so, a little bit over five years. I would listen to stories of my friends, friends with degrees, friends with bachelors, friends with masters, friends with law degrees, women, black women, specifically tell me how hard it was for them to even get a salary over 50000 When I left undergrad, I worked immediately for the Secretary of State of New Jersey, the first black female Secretary of State of New Jersey. After that, I left because I was disenchanted with politics, and I entered into um, being a merchant with both Trader Joe's and Target. I left earning salaries near $100,000, plus bonuses. I bought my last two cars with cash. I was upwardly mobile. I have no kids. I was not married. I was able to provide for myself. This is in the, the Philadelphia metro area at this time. And when I moved down here, I found myself walking in the same footsteps as my mother. I came down with experience. I came down with, with this perspective. I came down with this work ethic. I was ready to go, but yet I could not find those opportunities. Now, granted, I, I, I shifted my, my focus from, you know, working either in politics specifically, um, and, and, and I definitely left retail completely, <laughs> um, but I knew I had great experience. I knew I had a number of transferable skills that would lend, that, that would just make for just, just a great, I guess, great success in, in, in certain um, office settings. But again, things shifted. Now, one thing I'm leaving out about my story is that I know that I'm a strong personality. I'm not unfair. I'm not anyone that would ever hurt anyone. I'm not vicious. I'm not mean, but I know I'm, I'm very, very strong. And I'm strong-willed. And I know my worth. And so I take that also with me in the workplace, and I don't hide that. And people who know me know that. 
I don't call myself difficult. I, I know that I have standards and I hold people to, uh, to account as well. But give, keep it, get, having all that in mind, I understand that that brand of black woman here, well, that doesn't really work. And, and I think my mom, who's more, I would say, considerably more mild-mannered than I am, for her to even find difficulty in the workplace. And then I look at my friends who are just so conservative and, and, and just, just amazingly just well-appointed and professional. And if they're finding, they're finding hard to, finding it hard to find opportunities there's got to be a a better there's got to be a deeper reason and then I started to really examine I started to really lean on my reading lean on on reading more about Ida B. Wells about Phyllis Wheatley learning more about Harriet Tubman even and these radical figures in, in black feminist history and seeing that we all had this common thread where the work that we were expected to do was usually very, um, gr- it was gritty, it was hard, it was painstaking, right? The work that we were asked to do is usually very, very labor-intensive. Very rarely are we called in to be thought leaders and innovators. Very rarely are our ideas taken in as being progressive and cutting-edge and radical. But we are, we exist. Like I said, I leverage our archive and I find and I find these hidden figures that are just these dynamic women who've just done things that are still to this day would, would, would awe me and knock me off my feet and have, have I met them today. I'm, I'm reading about these women because it, it gives me comfort, but it still brings me sorrow. It gives me comfort to know that I am not making this up, this anxiety that I fear, that I feel, these doors that are closed. These are, this is not uncommon, right? This is what it is this is life in the south all too often the south and i say this often people probably heard me say this so many times right the south and charleston specifically they don't when it comes to black women in in the workplace they tend to want an affable mammy figure a non-threatening asexual woman who provides comfort care and sustenance if you look up some pictures of black women in work in charleston you'll find women black women suckling, breastfeeding white babies, the white babies that they were in charge of. You'll find black women carrying these, these really heavy baskets of cotton on their head. You'll find pictures of women in Charleston uh, working rice fields. You'll find pictures of women, you know, working in the dairies on, um, we're not going to call them plantations anymore. We're going to call them forced labor camps because that's what they are. You'll see these, these depictions of black women working. Imagine being a mom giving birth and having to return to the field just within days. Imagine that. Could you imagine that? Being forced back to work? For some women, being forced back to work too early is a reality, unfortunately, even today. But imagine having to go back and to perform something as labor-intensive as, as you know, harvesting crops in, the, in this type of heat, in the sun of South Carolina, amid all this wildlife and insects, and you just gave birth. Imagine that. Imagine being brought over on a slave ship at age seven from Senegal and being so gifted that you pick up the English language in record time, and your mind, you're a gifted prodigy, and you start writing poetry. And no one sees that as genius. They, they think you, you're just not smart enough. Black people aren't smart enough to write beautiful things. Imagine that. That's the Phyllis Wheatley story. For too many women in the South, 
job opportunities, labor opportunities, viable opportunities for us to earn a living and to take care of ourselves are few and far in between. And the salaries, whew, like I mentioned, I didn't mention this as a, as a, as a flex. I commanded a salary that was near $100,000. Of course, it was in retail and sales, and those salaries tend to be a little higher than maybe some average ones in other industries. But I wasn't even able to come close to anything that resembled that here. Interview after interview, I'd get called in, maybe, maybe. More often than not, I was never called for an interview. And sometimes I was, I was brought in as a diversity interview. You know, so you can check off the fact that you did interview a black woman. My time was wasted. I get my hopes up. I know I have the job. I even had people call me and say, no, this is for you. This job is yours. Look at this. This, this just is your resume. It's just written in their job description. And I know those are my friends, and so they're going to advocate for me. But I, there, there are times where I've, I've thrown my hat into the proverbial ring and been very, um, let's just say, dismayed that I didn't get the job. And this isn't about lost opportunities for Mika as an individual. It's about a culture of, 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 of economic exclusion. It's a culture of disenfranchisement where our labor is not seen the same. Even to this day, I've offered so many political hot takes. I've been featured in the New York Times. I, I'm working currently with the Washington Post to have certain pieces um, uh, published during, the, during this, this uh, election series. Um, I've spoken to a number of political candidates, and yet no one has hired me to be a surrogate. I have a weekly talk show. No one is saying, you know what, Mika, I think there's a space for you here. There's something about the lack of imagination when it comes to the black voices that speak out and speak up. Or just your everyday regular qualified black woman. I had so many friends who, who, who love the South, who love Charleston, go to school, get their undergrad degree somewhere in the state, and then move on. I often say that I am the daughter of Jim Crow refugees. I say that often so people understand that I do have an identity that is rooted here in the South, but because of the lack of, of economic opportunities for both my mother and my father, they had to go to New Jersey, to the Bronx, to Queens, and find viable work. My dad told me the other day, or rather the, uh, a few months ago, he couldn't live off $200 a, a, a week. He moved to New Jersey, found a good union job, and immediately doubled his salary. Imagine having to leave because the jobs weren't, people were closing doors, not because the jobs didn't exist, but because they either didn't want to pay you what you were worth or because they just didn't want you in those spaces. That's the story of my mother and my father, but it's also the story for a lot of black women here. In the city that, that wants a pat on the back for being a leader in arts and culture, it doesn't have the imagination, it doesn't have the will doesn't have the courage to honor voices that aren't monolithic and that aren't comforting. I'm not here to clean up anyone's mess. I'm not here to take care of anyone's children unless I want to. I'm not here to provide comfort and make you feel good about your white guilt. I'm here just like everyone else trying to make my own way trying to use my voice and trying to use my voice in a way that makes it easier for the next Mika that comes behind me. Trying to create platforms where we can democratize media, where we can democratize public, we, we, can, we can think critically about, about issues and heighten the level of discourse here. 
that we can question things and not be penalized for it. So when I go to the next nonprofit and say, hey, you know what, I have a, I have a certificate in digital marketing and social media. I actively manage the pages for several organizations. I've, I've got over, I've got tens and tens of thousands of followers that I am, I am uniquely, uh, uh, I guess, uh, I, I was, I guess that I created, right? I, I was able to have pages and accounts garner scores and scores of followers and and I'm good at analytics and I can break it down and I came down here and I I started as a content creator on my own and I built my website from scratch and I I learned the game and I learned how how to maximize things if I told you if I went to your the next nonprofit and say hey I'm good at this and they tell me oh no 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 no, you're not good you're not you're not that no we we don't have space for that but but you know can you um can you just be the person that you know just does all our programs for us can you be the face um, to show people that we're we're more diverse than we actually are? I'm not really good at programs, you know. I'm not really good at that, but I'm really good at marketing. I'm really good at coming up with concepts and campaigns, and and um, tapping into certain markets and breaking down numbers and letting. No, 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 no. no. I want you to do something. I want you to lift something. You know, when I graduated high school from St. Andrews here in 1999, I tell this story often as well. My guidance counselor refused to help me with my college education. I meant my college application. I wanted to go to Rutgers. I was from Jersey. <laughs> and I didn't have the best grades because uh, Lord knows if you went to public schools in Charleston, I, I pray for the kids that, that, that come through because it was tough for me. And I know it's still tough because we're minimally adequate. But when, I, when, I, when it was time for me to graduate, and I went to the guidance counselor for that scheduled visit where they're supposed to sit down and help you chart your course for after after high school. She told me, <coughs> your grades aren't good enough to get into any schools. You need to work with your hands or go to the military. She, for verbatim, that's what she said. And I said, no, no, I want to I want to study. I want to study, you know, writing. I like poetry. No, 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 you should work with your hands. I never had anyone tell me that. And if you knew me, you would know that I'm no good with my hands. Ask any basketball coach I ever had. <laughs> I'm horrible. I'm horribly clumsy and, and, and awkward. And so to hear someone d- deny me the opportunity, not even tell me, hey, you know what, there are a number of two-year schools, you know, you, you need to get your grades up before you try to enter a four-year school. Maybe maybe get your grades up and, hey, here's a great path. This, this school over here, this two-year college has this program in English and the arts, and then you can transfer those credits over. Instead of giving me that advice, I had to go to the library. Every day after school, my brother was in basketball practice. And I, and I researched, I used the database that was at the library. No one helped me. I, I don't even know, to this day, I don't know how I had the, 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 the wherewithal to find this resource, but I found it. I want to say EBSCOhost, but I don't know if there was EBSCOhost. It was a database, though, of all the schools. I was able to look up all the schools in New Jersey. So Fairleigh Dickinson and, and Keene College and, and, and um, you know, the, the co- co- all these colleges, Rutgers. And, and I found one saying Jersey City College, Jersey City State College. And they had relaxed entrance um, requirements. Again, my, my guidance counselor never told me about that. I had to learn all this on my own. I did my own FAFSA. I did my twin brother's FAFSA forms. I had to figure this all out by myself because no one would invest and see me as more than just a, 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 a pair of hands and a pair of legs that can perform physical labor. No one saw me as an intellectually gifted person. 
Maybe one teacher did. Maybe out of my three years in Charleston, maybe one teacher saw that. But I had to chart my own course because of the limitations that were before me, because of how people refused to see me. And I'm so sad that I'm still struggling with this. I'm trying not to just make this about me. I know it sounds like it's me, 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 but I'm trying to let you know that this story is not just specific to me. I'm going to play now some clips. I know I've talked about about 30 minutes. I'm going to play some clips that I found um, this this whole time preparing for this show. Um, I'm reading currently, just co- it just so happens that I'm reading a new, a new book from uh, Sadia Hartman. It's called Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval. And it's an amazing, amazing book that um, uncovers all these radical black black lives of women and queer women and 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 just revolutionary thinkers and all throughout the 30s who were policed and marginalized for doing things that we would call radical today. They were true visionaries. And there is an interview that um, that the author, Sadia Hartman, conducted at the Hammer Institute. Uh, I'm going to play a portion of that, but I'm just going to just start playing. Um, there were some other clips as well Just that just either are, I'm playing something that's uplifting or things that just kind of outline what it is that I'm dealing with. And the one clip is, um, let me see if I can turn this up. There's one clip, um, Rihanna just had her diamond ball. Shout out to her. Rihanna and Rihanna Navy. Um, Rihanna just had her, her her diamond ball, I believe, last night, and so she was on a red carpet, and Essence magazine got her, and she just said something that made me feel good about today, and felt made me feel good about going into today's show. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna I'm gonna play that now. Let's see how loud this is. And I'm a black woman. I come from a black woman who came from a black woman who came from a black woman. And I'm going to give birth to a black woman. And so it doesn't even, it, it's a no-brainer. That's who I am. It's the core of who, who I am in spirit and in DNA. And I'd always stand up for who I believe in and who I love and who I, who I know, who I respect. My mother's raised me to be an incredible woman. And she's a strong, incredible example of what to be and how to fight through obstacles in life. And I'm sure... Her mom has also taught her, and that's how I'm going to be. Like, we, we're impeccable. We are impeccable. We're special, and the world is just going to have to deal with that. Awesome. And I'm- <laughs> the world is just going to have to deal with that. I could not have said it better. Um, I, I, I started my day. I found that early on, so I kind of started my day. That was like a little affirmation that I, I just listened to it like two times. Like the world is impeccable and they're just going to have to deal with it, right? Because even after, though I'm talking to you about how tough it is, I know I'm going to keep fighting. I don't have a choice. What I'm going to do, lay down, <laughs> right? So um, for, to all the brown girls that might be listening or, or all the people who care about a brown girl, a black girl in their lives right now, let them know that they're impeccable, and the world's just going to have to deal with them. <laughs> the next clip I want to play um, uh, is from, let me see. Oh, it's another clip from um, the 1619 Project. I know a couple oh, a show ago, before again, before the evacuation, I had my friend Benny on. We were talking about the 1619 Project. And I aired, I think, one or two clips um, from the 1619 Project. But I didn't air the one that I really wanted to, which was um, there was a, a contributor to the 1619 Project, Eve Ewing. And Eve, um, she wrote about Phyllis Wheatley. 
And I grew up seeing Phyllis Wheatley on those like commemorative calendars that like black history calendars that our, our area funeral home would give out in Red Bank, New Jersey. Or, you know, like you would see him at school. My shout out to my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Ham. Uh, Mrs. Ham was an African-American teacher and she just lived for Black History Month. Like that room turned into a museum, you know. And so um, I learned about Phyllis Wheatley through these women, through, through various ways or rather. And um, but but Eve Ewing had a great contribution to the 1619 Project, where she talked about Phyllis Wheatley's life, and I didn't know that her life was this hard. So I'm gonna play that clip. Um, I'm gonna play that clip right now. Let's see if we. Um, let's see. Eve, maybe we could then move to you. And what, why was it that Phyllis Wheatley was the thing person on that list that you thought I want to write about that? Sure. Well, it was a really difficult choice because, as you said, it was a long list, and it's such an ambitious project—400 years of Black history, all of which is worth talking about. Um, but I think I felt a sense of obligation to uplift the voice and the story of Phyllis Wheatley um, as a Black woman poet myself, and as someone who thinks a lot about the ways in which Black women are marginalized, um, even within stories about Black history and our narratives about Black history history, as well as um, thinking about black literary um, history, um, I felt an obligation to her as I use the word foremother in the poem. And uh, she lived a very difficult and short life. Um, and there's a way in which uh, when you are a person who's lauded or who gets to be the first of something, it's presumed that, that, that all that kind of laudatory experience just meant that you had an easy life. And so I, like probably many of us, saw her on lots of you know, like uh, exemplary Negro history book list posters on classroom walls and things like that as a kid, but didn't actually know a lot about her. And in diving into her life, uh, felt deeply, deeply saddened um, by really what, what happened to her and her experiences and felt obligated to tell that story um, and really grateful that I had the chance to do what it. What were some of the things that, that you learned when you dove into her story? Sure. Um, so as, as I, you know, I begin the, the poem with this quotation from Thomas Jefferson and um, um, it was it was common belief among many of the people we consider the intellectual architects of Western thought that black people were not capable of making art. Um, so you hear the quote from Hume, from Kant, from Jefferson, those voices throughout the poem. And in order, so when Phyllis Wheatley was, was purchased as a seven-year-old, and she came straight from Senegal, she was born on the African continent. Um, and when she was purchased, she right away started to display these unusual habits. She started writing poetry at a really young age as someone who had only recently learned English. And nobody believed that a black woman could write poetry, that a black person could write poetry. I mean, this was like, I mean, believed on a level of like scientific possibility. Um, and so many of who we now consider uh, the forefathers of this country actually had to show up and sign an affidavit. They quizzed her, they interviewed her, they asked her questions about herself and about her poems, and then they created this statement um, saying, yes, we can attest that she, she really wrote these poems. Um, and so that's the proof that is the, you know, they had to, it was only real when uh, a group of white men said we witnessed it for ourselves. Um, she really did write them herself. Uh, I've had experiences like that in my own life. Uh, but, and the, and then the, the terrible. Yeah, yeah, I just, that clip was amazing. Um, again, shout out to Eve Ewing, um, the poet, um, it, it, that, that story, I never knew that, um, you know, I think she subsequently died at a younger age and, and destitute and, 
idea there's more to the story. Um, and now again, um, if you uh, if you want to, you can go to SoundCloud and you can, um, or you can go to iTunes and look up the 1619 episode of Miked Up, and you can see clips or you can see links to the clip that I just um, that I just played. It's an entire two two hour long event, but it's worth your time and investment to get in there and hop around and listen to not just Eve but the other contributors um, that were featured on that stage at the launch event. Um, just seeing like again uh, the, the lack of imagination this world has for Black women and our and our intellectual heft, right? The the heft we bring to projects into this world. It's it's really. Um, it's been really marginalized. And even in, a, again, a previous clip, we talk about um, the way slaves were kind of treated and, and, and discussed, um, the way the enslaved were treated and discussed was almost as if we were just these empty vessels that had no intellect or any culture. We were just savage beasts that existed on the continent. And that's not true. The, the, these rice crops, they chose African slaves specifically because of their agricultural knowledge and acumen and not just that, the way they, they use science and mathematics to cultivate these crops and to even know how to grow the crops and not just the crops, other things like the baskets and tools that they would use to harvest the crops. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot that goes into that. And we come from a, 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 a we come from more than just pain. We come from and not just royalty either, but we do come from a, a continent that's just loaded with riches, riches in intellect, riches in human capital, and 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 colonizers knew to mine, knew to mine for slave for the um for for enslaved people, they knew where to mine for enslaved people, um and so we didn't come as another clip I played last, a couple of weeks ago said we didn't come with empty heads. We may have came come with nothing on our backs, but we didn't come with empty minds. Another clip I want to play is a conversation between two of my favorite authors of all time, Rebecca Traster, shout out to Rebecca Traster, um, and also Brittany Cooper, who does teach, teach at Rutgers. So um, Professor Crunk, as she's uh, affectionately called, um, you know, there was a discussion she had about um, uh, a black feminist figure that I knew nothing about up until last year, and that's Mariah Stewart. And Mariah Stewart said something that just hit me so hard, right? And it, it's something about black women, like if black people are people, black women specifically, but if we are busy with, with physical labor, what does that do for us intellectually, right? How does that stymie our intellectual growth and, and, and other things that we, we know we can do? So I'm going to play this clip, too, from um, from Professor Crunk, Brittany Cooper. Oh, let me see if it's ready yet. It's not quite ready. Let me see. I had it queued up, but um, I think I might. Let me see. Here we go. But black feminists don't tell the story that way. We tell the story beginning with someone like Mariah Stewart, who in 1831 in Boston became the first woman of any color to speak to mixed race and mixed gender audiences about abolition and the need for freedom. And if you read Mariah Stewart, she is advocating for the right of black women to have bad attitudes. She is like, no, we had a right to this because y'all are literally, she says, how long shall daughters, our daughters of Africa labor beneath a load of uh, pots, uh, have their uh, minds buried beneath, beneath a load of pots and kettles? So she's talking not in the context of slavery, but in the context of freedom and saying that, that manual labor that is not well compensated and that is grueling that it literally kills the creative and intellectual ability of black women to imagine how they might live and thrive. Right. 
And so that's exactly, uh, that spoke to me because that's exactly how I feel, right? I feel like oftentimes if I, if I pursue one career path or one path here, um, I'm used, I'm usually met with an unsavory alternative. Like, oh, well, we can't pay you, but you can volunteer and you can do this labor. You can wake up um, at nine and go fight through traffic. And, you know, I'm not saying nine to five is hard. I'm not saying that. But like you, you can go through the rigors of this, but you can't do with person X is doing. You know, I, 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 I'm not going to shade anyone, but there are a lot of unique careers out here right now right and and like when I think of sometimes of a, of a life coach not no shade to those who are viable life coaches and who actually know but I see a lot of people like create jobs like that and they're very sought after because they are able to perpetuate a certain lifestyle or they look a certain way or they fit an aesthetic but my point is this that's more acceptable and something that we can wrap our minds around that's more readily acceptable than maybe oh Mika can be a strategist Omika could be a consultant. Uh, you know, Omika can do this. We can put her on re- retainer. You know what? Um, our our nonprofit can't give her a salary right now, but we can pay her what her worth, what what she's worth per. You know, it could it could be um you know, pr- you know, program specific, right? It could be individualized program specific. And so when I'm gonna read that quote that that Brittany kind of like stumbled through, but this is what Mariah Stewart, um, again she predated. She predated the Grimke sisters. I know a lot of people like to throw the Grimke sisters up, but um, we gotta we gotta we gotta acknowledge these black women that came before the Grimkeys and and and, and RBG and all of that. You know, it was black women out here. We had to be the first feminists. We had to fight for our own self because we had to we had to deal with double oppression. You know, being black and being female, and then on top of that, being it being illegal to be black in the South and throughout the entire country, we had to deal with that. That's Jim and Jane Crow, for those who don't understand what I mean. So this is the quote from Mariah Stewart. It reads, how long, she'd ask, shall the fair daughters daughters of Africa be compelled to bury their minds and talents beneath a load of iron pots and kettles? You ever want to do something, but you're preoccupied with so many things that you don't feel like you can get to your passion projects? Like even like in everyday life, like you might have a a passion or a hobby that you're really good at, but you can't get to it because, you know, life kind of gets in the way. You know, maybe you at work like I used to be sometimes I'd be at work at my job, which I a job that I even liked. But I'd be at work at my job, but I'd, I'd be thinking and working, using the computer to do other things. Right. Like set my fantasy football lineup or something like that. You know, you know, sometimes life gets in the way. Now, imagine you having to deal with the, the day to day of a grueling job. You know, um, recently, too, I don't mind just sharing this. I'm not going to share too many details. But recently I snapped um, when someone offered me a job and it wasn't it was a political job. And I didn't I, and, I, and I didn't mean to hurt the person's feelings. And it really wasn't about the person. It was just the time that this this opportunity came to me. I, I was already feeling overwhelmed, stretched. You know, my finances are low. My balance was probably a negative two hundred dollars. And that's no lie. Right. I was just dealing with all these different stresses. I got things coming up. This hurricane season. You got to plan for this and that and do all this other stuff. Secure this payment. Secure that um, that opportunity. Hustle for these contracts. And so the person was like, hey, you know, you can work, you know, 40 hours a week 15, for $15 an hour. And I ain't worked for $15 an hour since I don't know when. And and darn sure didn't do it on no full-time basis. And, um, again, there's no shade to people who do that. But for me, it, it, for that person who I felt they knew me, it hurt. It hurt that they couldn't, they didn't know that that, you know what, this might not be the right fit for Mika. Let me wait until I got something better. 
And even if, even if you you knew that I was like maybe um you know hard up for money or opportunities, there's a way you could have presented that so where you knew and you acknowledged that hey, this is not where you are, but this might get you through some tough times. And I think and again that person didn't mean any harm by it, but it hurt me because I know that 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 salary, no benefits, fifteen dollars an hour. I knew that that was not what I was worth. It wasn't. It isn't. And so it came at that time where I was dealing with all these stresses and pressures and, you know, um, you know, my phone broke and I, I got to buy a new iPhone and that ain't cheap. And and, and this bill came and Navient, um, you know, for some reason, the interest on my student loans went sky high. And, and in my insurance, I haven't had a, an at-fault accident since probably 2009, if not more further back than that. Yet my insurance is going up every month. I mean, I'm dealing with a lot of things. I live far out, so that means my gas that I use on a weekly basis is probably double to anyone else's. You know, it's just so much I'm dealing with financially and to be presented with a a, a job that's probably more fit. And and I'm talking about the title of the job and and the core competencies. The job was more fit for someone who was much younger than myself and someone who didn't have the skills and and the transferable skills that I had. And, And it hurt. I felt disappointed. And that's what it feels like right now that I have to work so hard just to find things that just to make sense where I see other people employ. I've, I've, I've heard stories of other people, um, other executive directors wooing other talented, my white contemporaries saying, you know what, you pick it. Whatever job you want, you tell me what that looks like. You pick it. I've never had that opportunity down here. I don't know if I've ever had the opportunity at, at all. Where someone sees that you know you've got something and, and they and they can create a role for you. I've seen it with men a lot. I've seen it with men a lot. So um, that Mariah Stewart quote really hit home because I feel like I'm always kind of being um, given the pots and pans, um, but I'm never given the leadership role. And if I do get it, I'm fighting for it. I even fought for even this mic right here, you know. So um, uh, this is mic'd up on OM. I didn't do any station identification. It's 45 minutes in. This is mic'd up on OM. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. We're talking about black women in labor, intellectual labor, emotional labor, physical labor, and how we're mar- how our worth and our talents are usually marginalized uh, on, on OM today. This is um, we're, we're broadcasting live as we do every day during mostly every show. We're broadcasting live from Workshop, which is at 1503. King Street, and uh, remember, OM is your nonprofit, non-commercial radio station here. So it's one of the only media sources locally that that's not influenced by any type of advertisers, not that I know of. So you know, unsponsored radio content. It's all homegrown and grassroots. So y'all, please make sure y'all find a way to you think about you know finding a way to uh, support OM Radio by heading to the website um, and finding out more about how you can can contribute and give um there's another uh clip i wanted to play and again um i would suggest those uh, once i return the book from holding it hostage or just i would suggest you buy it because you should be buying more black writers i'm sure your canon at home is not black enough not black and femme enough so pick up sadia hartman and sadia spelled s-a-i-d-i-y a hartman um her book wayward lives and beautiful wayward lives comma 
beautiful experiments, intimate stories of social upheaval. That book, I just can't put it down. I've taken it with me. I've been in North Carolina twice. I was in uh, the Congressional District uh, District 9 in North Carolina this week earlier with Black Voters Matter. Um, when I went to the mountains, I brought this book with me in Asheville. Um, I've been obsessed. It's a big book. It's a great book. Um, but I found an interview. It just, just it kind of popped up, I guess, because, you know, these phones are listening, right? I'm a conspiracy theorist. These phones are listening, and so YouTube suggested a clip. And um, I do consume the Hammer Institute, um, the, excuse me, the Hammer Museum's content on YouTube. But Sadia's, uh, an interview with Sadia and um, with her friend Arthur Jaffa popped up. And this was something that was, I believe it was taped back in uh, June of this year. And she's talking to her friend about the book. I would suggest that people read that. Like she does a thing in the beginning. It's not an intro. It's called Notes on the Method because the book is not, she didn't want to, it's not a novel. And she she used he finds all these these black women who who led these extraordinarily radical lives throughout the 30s and the 50s. Um, she found all these women um, from Philadelphia and all these you know these different pockets of urban areas. And so like they're real women, but they had to change the name. So it's not a novel, but it's not exactly like you know a journalist account. But anyway, read the notes on the the method in which she used to approach this book. But here's a little bit from the exchange. I'm just going to jump in. Again, this is Sadia Hartman. She's speaking with her friend who's interviewing her, Arthur Jaffa. Ensemble versus the individual genius. You're already saying it's something outside of the author itself is responsible for the cultural ferment that's going on. Yeah, no, I I think... um I like that way of framing things and um, certainly like, you know, George Lewis and critical improvisation studies is trying to open that frame. But I heard Vijay Iyer speak of music for me in a way um, that's resonant with this because he was thinking, um, basically he was saying that music is just, you know, the product of a particular organization of sociality. So rather than um, it, you know, kind of thinking about the hierarchy of aesthetic value, just think, oh, one mode of sociality produces music, another mode of sociality produces the feast at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. And but just kind of thinking about those things in relation and practices of resistance produce music and practices of resistance produce dance and stories. Um, So that vision for me is much more open um, than the efforts to kind of, I don't know, to, to say, you know, we are at the table too and to make a certain set of arguments about aesthetic value, um, and then include, you know, women in what's already, it seems like a very narrow set of presuppositions about the supremacy of the aesthetic or what its constituents are. A certain kind of creativity is overvalued than other kinds of creativity, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I see see that a lot, actually. But, okay, I want to ask you something else that's kind of related, but it's a little bit of a kind of something that was curious to me as I was going through the book is the specificity of young black women versus black women, period. Yeah. Like, what is it about? Is something slightly melancholy about it when I thought about the implications of it, and I want to ask you about it. Why 
the radical lives or the radical example of young black women in this time yeah. period? I mean, one, and just as I think those other examples you mentioned, there's something about the figure of the maternal that can always be recuperated, right? And so the most masculinist figure has like a story about um, the mother, right? And it seems that uh, there's a way that black women's maternal labor um, is under command by both white supremacy and these capitalist structures. Um, partly it's about young women because they were targeted as wayward minors, right? Women between 14 and 25. I think that there's also a way that we feel the heartbreak and the kind of the tragic character because we see these really brilliant, talented, young women um, whose futures are eclipsed, whose opportunity um, are taken away. So they're, you know, at this moment where they're coming into adulthood and they're being funneled into this really um, narrow, onto this really narrow path of servitude. So they're the ones who are saying, no, 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 so partly they're being targeted by the state. Um, they're the ones who are most um, public and declarative around that resistance, and we see what doesn't get to come into being. So, mm -hmm. that, so that was part of it. Um, but I think that... Yeah, I'm going to stop it there. I thought that last part was really spot on. You know, what doesn't what was never allowed to come into being, um, being women, you know, the resistance to our types of creativity when she talks about those different types of socialities, you know, that we honor, that come out in different ways, be it culinary or, um, you know, maybe structural art. But yet when it comes to black, um, I think black uh, expression, it really becomes policed in a way that's really uncanny and, and, and confining. And even for me as a woman who's quote unquote free in America, um, you know, I'm I'm find myself confined by that those those the vestiges of, of of those practices that took place when you policed our bodies as the enslaved, and then when that transformed um, after Reconstruction into Jim and Jane Crow, and we're still dealing with that because the policies that came out of that informed the way people view our labor and our worth currently. There's one thing. There's two other articles. I'm, I'm I know I'm up against time, but there are two articles that I uncovered. Um, one came last year in the form of a tweet. A woman on Twitter. Twitter she was in the library I believe she was she was in some sort of archive and she was able to um she unearthed an article from Greenville South Carolina and I'm looking it up because I posted it um several several times today so I'm grabbing my phone right now and um, it was an article posted um rather the article was published originally uh in Greenville South Carolina in October of 19. Uh, 1918, yeah, October 2nd, and the title, the headline of the article, Negro Women Put to Work, City Ordinance Soon to Be Passed Requiring Them to Be Regularly Employed. So they, they created an ordinance, they passed an ordinance in Greenville in 1918, making it illegal for women, black women, to be unemployed because women, black women who were idle were seen as a threat to society. We couldn't even be allowed to be free. They forced us into work. So what does that sound like to you? Right. It sounds like slavery. 
they find with this world, this world finds a way. White supremacy finds a way to confine us, to sentence us to servitude. And that's what the book talks about. That's what Sadia writes about. One of the other quotes from Sadia's book um, that I'm reading, it says, at the turn of the 20th century, young black women were in open rebellion. They struggled to create autonomous, beautiful lives to escape from new forms of servitude awaiting them and to live as if they were free. So back at the turn of the 20th century, black women were, were rebelling against these oppressive forces to say, no, we don't want to be mammies. We don't want to be, you know, nursemaids. We don't want to be women that take care of homes, domestics. Not to say there's anything wrong with those, those vocations, but we know that we are more than that if we wanted to be. So I know that there's a blueprint. I know that there is a precedent for black women who feel like me, who are presented with these limited options. I don't want to be someone's wife. I don't want to just be their wife. I don't just want to be someone's girlfriend. I don't just want to be someone's uh, tokenized black figure at your function. I don't know. I don't want your exposure in, in your magazine for free. I need to be paid. I'm, a, I'm good enough to be a contributor. You got a young lady right now writing. I'm not going to say nothing because I do. I'm critical. We got a young lady right now writing for the, for the Post and Curry. I don't know how much she's compensated, but she's not that good. And I, and, and I don't know why. No one can say, you know what? We could do better at this position. How about we start a journalism fellowship program at CFC where we, where we center the voices of marginalized communities or women of color? Or women, or, or you know, or, or just a plethora of different identities, to mine for better talent. There's no, there's no, there's no need for. It. There's no search for it here. There's no hunger for real, real excellence. Mediocrity is uplifted. And then what I love to see, what I see, is a knee-jerk reaction. So instead of dealing with Mika, who comes with opinion and critique, we're gonna uphold her mediocre black woman equivalent. And tout that as the example, as the standard. And that's what I reject against. I reject it as well. Um, I just, ooh, I just went someplace mentally that I just forgot that I was on air. I know I got like four minutes. Um, there's something else I wanted to, to read. So I just read to you that, that uh, the headline of that article, again, published in 1918 in Greenville, South Carolina, an ordinance that was passed. It was, quote, Negro women put to work, a city ordinance soon to be passed, requiring them to be regularly employed, requiring women, black women to work whether they wanted to, whether they needed to or not. Another article that I uncovered um, using the Newsbank um, database <coughs> At, uh, at the, uh, you know, from the uh, Charleston County Public Library. Use your library, support your library, y'all. Um, an article I found from July 10th of 1906, the headline, and this was printed in Columbia, South Carolina. So this is 1906, y'all. Okay, this is 12 years prior to that, 19, that 1918. So it, it says, uh, um, idle Negro women, a menace to whites and a disgrace to the Negro race. And it's an article that's kind of hard to read, but not really. It's, 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 uh, it's in its original typeface. And it talks about how all these black women who are free now, out in the streets, just being free, living their lives. And in fact, in Denmark VC's Garden, um, the book that I often um, point to, they talk about the, the laws and codes that they came up to police black women. We couldn't wear certain colors here in Charleston because we were seen as Jezebels and whores and harlots. They policed our bodies. They policed our movements so that we would go back to being that affable mammy that wouldn't say anything, that had to work to support our children. 
Um, I want, I'm encouraging you in the last two minutes of the show. I want to encourage everyone also to go down to the Halsey. Um, currently, you have an exhibition there. Um, and I've spoken about uh, Quentin Quash. Clinton Kwashi, um, but the other artist I did not speak about was Katrina Andry. Katrina Andry, Andry spelled A-N-D-R-Y. Uh, she has an ex- exhibition there. Over there and here is me and me. And it's an exhibition that challenges all these stereotypes as they pretend to uh, black women. And there's one specific piece. It's the um, Mammy Complex, colon, uh, unfit mommies make for fit nannies. So black women, we're seen as unfit mothers typically, but we're we're fit enough to take care of, of white women's children. That's just one art piece currently at the Halsey Institute um, here in downtown Charleston. So please check out Katrina Andrews over there. And here is Me and Me, her exhibition that challenges black stereotypes. Um, and it's amazing. It's beautiful work. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure you just support the black woman in your life, y'all. We need employment. We need viable opportunities and not tokenized BS. We need real viable opportunities. We're just as viable as your white female counterparts. Until next time, y'all, I want you to stay free. To all my sisters out there, hold your head and stay black.